Hello and welcome to part two of this podcast episode. It's time now to interview Robert Griffin of Democracy Fund Voter Study Group. I started by asking Robert if he could describe the role of Voter Study Group. Well, I, so I think we're we're a little bit broader than your typical uh, polling shop. And that mm. We're just not, as you kind of mentioned, just saying like who you're voting for. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of horse race polling out there. We don't think the value add is throwing yet another number into the wind, if you know what I mean. Mm. So the big thing for us is still asking those things, right? Because political behavior, right, the, the lived action that, that, you know, comes at the end of all these values and beliefs and everything else are important. Um, but you actually have to ask a, a much broader array of questions that get into sort of deep dimensions of American politics and, and American political identity. So attitudes around race, attitudes around gender, um, attitudes around immigration, feelings towards different social groups, uh, you know, psychological predispositions towards certain towards certain types of personality types. These are all sort of interesting, valuable ways to start to just report kind of who's up and who's down, but understand both what people think about things, how those things are changing, and then how that breeds into sort of political action um, at the end of the day. So, you know, I, I think for us, we just sort of cast a wider net in terms of the types of things that we ask about, the types of things that we investigate mm-hmm. Um, a lot of traditional poll like this, which is, again, sort of a documentation of sort of who up, who's up and who's down, kind of. Um, you talk about personality types and going quite deep into looking at the electorate that way. How significant do you think those factors sure. are that are kind of hidden away from the traditional political discourse? Uh, I, I think it can kind of vary depending on what you're talking about. I mean, there, there's also, to be totally fair, there's a lot of junk uh, psych, you know, psychological metrics, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, you know, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, here's your personality type, and you're an outsider, right? Mm-hmm. And lots of people will generate metrics around that. We try to stick to stuff that's closer to having sort of a long academic history as being somewhat important, some some underlying dimension that's sort of interesting or valuable. And again, whether or not it's insightful to look at it at any given moment in American politics, you know, sometimes it's not. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you measure something like. Uh, authoritarianism, right, which has been measured in political psychology for decades. Um, and it doesn't have interesting, you know, it doesn't tell you something interesting necessarily about how people uh, act or what they believe at a current given moment. But it's, you know, it's useful, again, to sort of track it over time, sort of know whether these things are having an effect or not. Looking at all these different attitudes and values, what would you say has changed since 2016? Because a lot of the reports from that election was about the electorate wanting change. It was a, an election that favoured outsiders, whether in the primaries or in the actual presidential race. What what has changed in those four years? Well, I mean, there, there's been a lot that's shifted. Um, and, you know, in some ways you almost want to back up the clock, and we do, given sort of the time frame, a lot of the work that we do, but even back to 2011, 2012. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think on the Democratic side, um, what you've largely seen is a change in racial attitudes that probably, you know, piecing together the puzzle from various data points, seems like it started to take a turn sometime in around about the 2014, 2015, um, that you just started to see uh, a larger number of Democrats identifying uh, with more liberal attitudes towards race, more positive attitudes towards African-Americans, um, around about to that time period. Um Another thing that you've seen, largely in some ways, probably as a result of 
um, is Democrats liberalize on immigration, which might seem like a little contradictory, right? We're simultaneously living through a period in which immigrants in the United States and immigrant communities uh, are under threat in a lot of, in a wide variety of ways. But it's also one of the time periods in American politics where there, we, you know, we're, we're kind of at a high point for liberal attitudes about immigration, right? So it actually seems kind of contradictory, but people are reacting to the situation on the ground, right? That the lived example of the Trump administration is so off-putting to many Americans, particularly Democrats, that that has become a more central feature, a sort of a more central dimension, a defining mm-hmm. dimension of the American sort of political ideology. And as a result, Democrats are having this sort of like reverse magnetic uh, attraction to more liberal attitudes on immigration, given the, the, the sort of acts of the, the Trump administration. So in some ways, some of the biggest changes have actually been occurring on the left if we were t- taking a look just to sort of at how people are changing over this time period. Is that down to the Democrats gaining new voters who are already predisposed to those views on the left, perhaps younger voters, maybe more left-wing progressive voters, and moving away from, say, Rust Belt, traditional working-class voters? Or is it actually people have changed their minds? It, it's a little bit of A and a little bit of B. Yeah. <laughs> so you're seeing both happen. So one is that, you know, I guess think about it this way, right? So at any given time, the American public thinks a lot of it's about a lot of different things. But what happens with large political campaigns or even large political events is they're clarifying moments in which um, elected officials and the events that are occurring kind of tell people what are the salient dimensions of the time that we live in. And once that salience is made apparent to the American public, they start to sort themselves on the basis of that dimension if they weren't already sorted on it before. So immigration was one of these areas that there were kind of lines between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, sure, but it hadn't been as front and center as it became once Trump started sort of making it the the, the center point of his campaign. And once it became sort of that center point, people started to sort on the basis of that new issue in a way that they just hadn't done as finely in the past. At the same time, so that sorting is happening. At the same time, you also had as I kind of mentioned before, Democrats actually liberal liberalizing on both issues of race and immigration. So there's sort of like a yes and going on here. When you look at that coalition of Democratic support behind, say, Joe Biden at the moment, do you see evidence that he's yeah. managing to hold that party together better than Clinton did? Because in 2016, you had people going off who supported <laughs> Sanders in the primaries and then not either turning up to vote or voting for Trump instead. Do you think... Uh, Biden is managing to avoid that from happening. Yeah, no, for for sure. I mean, you know, like he, it, it, you know, any comparison between 2016 and 2020 just has to start with the sentence that Joe Biden is doing better in the polls than mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton was at the same time, you know, in that election cycle. Um, and that that support has been pretty, you know, plus or minus a little bit, kind of rock steady uh, almost since last year, right? Not much has actually changed too much with, within those top line numbers, even though we're living through this sort of incredibly tumultuous time otherwise. Um, so so it, it's, it's completely fair to say that Joe Biden is sort of doing better than Hillary Clinton. Now, whether that's the result of Joe Biden holding the coalition together, that's kind of a different question, right? What would happen if there was a different Democrat in place of Joe Biden? It's a little uncertain, right? Some of this could just be driven by the events that are occurring right now. I think the things that Joe Biden has working in his favor relative to 
both previous candidates like Clinton or even sort of contemporary candidates who could have been the nominee this year, like Sanders, is that he's viewed as more moderate by most Americans. Um, and generally speaking, moderation is going to, is going to get you a small percentage. It's going to get, it's going to mean that you're going to do a little bit better in the polls uh, at the national level. Um, so, you know, so Joe Biden is probably the beneficiary of that. Although some, some amount of the lead that he has uh, appears to be just driven by, you know, a, a judgment of the incumbent and a judgment on Trump and sort of what's been happening throughout his presidency. Is that what the most important issue to the majority of Americans is in this election? Trump, is it turning into a referendum on his presidency or do you think there are other issues going on? No, I, 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 again, I think it's a, it's always a bit of yes and, but I, yeah. I think it would be hard to ignore the extent to which this is you know, somewhat of a referendum, right? That people are making a judgment on the Trump administration writ large. Um, but it's also the case that, right, we're, we're living through a really tumultuous period where there are also things that Trump is not seen as handling particularly well. Um, so the pandemic, right, in the United States, it's kind of been a, one of the worst in the world, uh, if not the worst in the world. Um, and so, you know, we've had a situation where Trump's approval on this has been slowly ticking down since the start. The American public was willing to give Trump sort of a lot of leeway, uh, a lot of, you know, just good faith. Okay, you know, we think you're going to do a good job, so we're saying we're, we approve of the job you're doing. But then really, you know, that declined almost immediately, really. Um, and it's been sort of declining since then. Um, and the other hand is sort of the, the national protest that rocked most of the country. Trump is not seen as handling these particularly well, uh, nor, nor has he ever been seen as handling race relations in the United States, sort of the broader set of issues around that particularly well. So there's sort of, I think there's this bigger political environment that we exist in where Trump has always sort of had a low approval rating and he's always had some issues where essentially for the entire race, he's been running behind Joe Biden in the polls, um, essentially even since sort of last year. But then these are two issues that have really started to dominate how people start to conceptualize what this election is supposed to be out, uh, be about. And there are two issues that uh, Trump is just not doing particularly well on relative to Biden. Again, the, the handling of COVID-19 as well as handling of race relations in the United States. You hear a lot about the Trump campaign wanting, because of those weaknesses on those two areas, wanting to shift attention to the economy. Are views on the economy actually any more positive for the Republicans right now than they are on COVID and the race relations? They are certainly more positive than those two issues. Um, and historically, the Republican Party is actually seen uh, as being more competent on economic issues than the Democratic Party. There's sort of these sort of long-standing biases that exist within the American public, where they see Republicans, for example, uh, being more competent, and they trust them more on issues around the economy and around taxes and around foreign policy. Um, and for the Democratic Party, they actually see them as being much more competent on things like health care. Uh, or on handling race relations, right? So, so the starting place of this is like there's these longstanding biases, and something that's sort of more based around the economy is, is definitely going to be an advantage to a Republican candidate running, just because there are long-term biases um, about that within the American public and the fact that Republicans handle it better. Now that said, in recent polls, you've actually seen Joe Biden and Donald Trump kind of running neck and neck on this issue, with Trump maybe sort of squeaking out a little bit of a small lead, saying that they trust Trump more than they would trust Biden on the economy. 
even though that seems like an area where it's an advantage for Trump, but that's actually, you know, again, thinking about that baseline of like, well, actually the American public trusts Republicans more, even running kind of neck and neck with, with Biden on that is, is kind of a, it's not a great position for a Republican candidate. By and large, the expectation is that, that he should be running ahead on that issue. But obviously, recent events have sort of called that into question with the American public. Um, so again, it, for the Trump campaign, it's going to make sense try to run on something like this as long as the economy continues to improve. Um, but, it, you know, it's still probably not a, it's not, it's not a, as good a position as he probably should be in, all things being equal. What groups of people, demographics, area, regions as well, is Trump losing supporting most? Is it those voters that he took from the Rust Belt and from Democratic uh, voting before in 2008, 2012? Is it those voters? Or is he just actually energising such coalition behind Biden of new, younger voters that it's kind of not been able to outnumber that? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, one of the biggest surprises about this, because the, the, the tendency is to want to say, ah, this is the group that moved. Mm. Um, um, but, but, you know, what, what we're really seeing in some ways is it, it seems to be older voters uh, and whiter voters who are turned away from Trump a little bit relative to support levels they had for him in 2016. Um, so, you know, it, it looks like this is sort of an, an older coalition of folks um, that have started supporting a Democratic candidate in a way that hasn't happened actually for a while, um, right? For the last 20 years or so, it's there's really been a, a Republican advantage among older voters. And at least right now, it kind of looks like Biden is actually ahead with these voters. So th- this is sort of a, a, a bit of a sea change in American politics if it holds on Election Day that this is actually what happens. Um, but, you know, the thing about older voters, it's not necessarily regional and doesn't necessarily even have to do with all these other demographic cuts. It's just, you know, there, there are people over 65 kind of everywhere in the United States. And we've sort of identified seemingly a, a shift that's occurred among most of them. Because they're so spread everywhere, do you think that will have a more significant impact on the Electoral College? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So so anytime you start talking about a demographic group that, for whatever reason, is, is distributed kind of in little pockets in the United States, right? So college-educated folks are a little more likely to be concentrated in cities. Uh, Latino Americans are more likely to be located in, in the South and the Southwest, Right they just will have sort of less of an impact. But once you're talking about something like an age distribution, or in this case, even white Americans, they're, they're really well distributed geographically for the purposes of electoral representation. So it, it, has a, it has a pretty big impact when groups like that move. If opinions between ages are starting to come together a bit more and not be so divergent, is education becoming the main determinant of who votes for what party? What kind of factor is contributing most to how somebody votes? Yeah, and again, I hate to always say it, but it's sort of a yes and thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so on the one hand, you're right though. Like, if age is becoming less of a determinant, that's actually a big change from the last couple of election cycles, um, when there were big gaps between 18 to 29 year olds and 65 year olds. Now, there are still gaps between them even now, but again, those, those gaps just appeared that they're smaller than they were in 2016, 2012, 2008. So if that's if that's shrinking, that's actually a, a big change. But other things that you're kind of mentioning, the education gap in particular, just appears to be kind of growing more prominent, um, at least, you know, especially among sort of non-white voters as well. Like there's, there's a white education gap that we've sort of documented and it's been there, but we're also seeing it start to pop out in other sort of racial groups as well. So that's sort of a new and kind of interesting dimension that we're not 100% sure 
um, if it's going to hold on election day or, you know, how long standing of a, of a new dimension that'll be. But it's at least for the time being, it's I think it's something we're keeping our eye on. Mm. When it comes to uh, younger voters, if you look at 2002, there wasn't so much of a difference between uh, eight, those who voted for Democrat and those that voted Republican. It was about 2%. In 2018, 67% of those between 18 and 29 voted for a Democratic candidate in the midterms. Why do you think, in terms of younger people, have they swung so heavily behind Democratic candidates over the last decade, say? Yeah, I mean, there, there's several there's several things that people point to that all kind of make sense. Um, so one of which is a compositional change. That is to say, the types of people that inhabit the 18 to 29 age range have just changed. They're more racially diverse. Um, they, they'll tend to be higher educated because they're getting more educated at a, at a higher and higher rate. And again, we kind of just talked about there's that growing education gap in the, in the American public. So that matters more over time as well. Um, and then there's also sort of a, a growing religiosity gap. The younger Americans are more likely to be unaffiliated, agnostic, atheist. And all of these things are kind of predictive of vote choice. So as a result, you're seeing younger coalitions of Americans just leaning more and more democratic. The, the again, first piece of the puzzle there is compositional. It's just there's different types of folks that are inhabiting those age ranges now. Um, the second piece of the puzzle has more probably to do with sort of generational differences, right? So it's this idea that different cohorts of folks even if they compositionally look the same, are a little bit different because of the type of political environment that they were raised in um, somewhere between, like, let's say, 18 and your, sort of your mid-30s, right? The political events that occur then leave sort of an indelible mark, right? A little bit of a, a, a stickiness to how people think about the world, the types of political attachments that they have. So these, there are these generational differences that suddenly exist between these generations that sort of will carry forward with them in time. As near as we can tell, what's happening in the United States with um, some of the youngest cohorts, which in this case is millennials uh, and Gen Z, who are currently like the 18 to 23-year-olds, is these are just left-leaning and democratic-leaning generations, much more so than previous generations. So again, kind of a combo. There's this composition difference, but there's also just the fact that even controlling for all those demographic features, you know, you'll still see somebody who's 18 to 29 and white just look different from somebody who's 65-year-old and white. Mm. Are the events that they're responding to that's making them more left-leaning, is that something that can be isolated to the Trump presidency or events before that as well? Uh, yeah, no, I think it, it, it's a combo thing because, you know, you think about when millennials, um, you know, were also sort of coming up political age in a way, yeah. and they still are to some degree. Um, but, you know, it's it's sort of the, the big events around the Bush administration, right? So you've got a, a war that was particularly unpopular, followed by a major recession. It was followed by a very popular president, Barack Obama, as well as sort of a, an economy that was growing at a, at a pretty strong rate. So again, you have this sort of negative, potentially end, tail end of a Republican presidency, followed by a relatively positive Democratic presidency. Uh, then followed up by Trump, who's once again sort of had an unpopular presidency. So it's not terribly surprising in some ways that, you know, even despite the fact, especially with Trump, that the economy's been roaring, there's been these other acts that he's taken and other stances that he's taken that have just created sort of a negative impression with earlier generations of folks. So at least at this point, there's sort of like a, there's a, there's a stretch here going all the way back to almost like 2003, really, um, that's just sort of predisposed younger voters uh, towards the Democratic Party. Would you suggest then that 
the views of voters and elections are actually determined a lot more by long-term trends and attitudes that have been shaped over 10, 15 years rather than events in a campaign, say, between now and November? Um, it, it's, again, I hate to always lean back on it's both, but it yeah. is, you know, you just have to think about them in proportion to one another, that, that in some ways you're starting from a baseline of some of the long-term ideological partisan predispositions of the electorate and how they're going to continue to kind of change over time. And then those are influenced by the, the facts on the ground that are occurring within any given election um, and sort of the events that are shaping it. Um, so, so it's always, it's always kind of, you know, half of one, half of the other a little bit. And then uh, just finally, looking forward to November, do you think that an enthusiasm gap, which some reports have started to talk up in a way that may favour Trump, do you see that as becoming significant? So it's not it's not 100% clear that, you know, how pollsters go about measuring this often is they'll ask people, you know, are you enthused to vote for so-and-so? And, and then you know, they take that to be an enthusiasm gap or something. It's not clear how well those questions actually capture people's, you know, uh, probability of voting or anything like that. Right. So, mm-hmm. so it, it, it makes for interesting fodder, I suppose, but it, it, there, there's a question about how much substance there actually is behind it and how well it predicts um, whether or not people will actually go to the polls. I mean, I think the, if I were to say the bigger things to probably keep our eye on for right now, it probably has to do more with some of the, how, you know, how the election is actually going to roll out, um, especially given that so many people are going to be trying to vote by mail this election cycle. The fact that there appears to be a big partisan split in how people are going to vote by mail, which Democrats are just saying they're much likelier to try to do this. Um, and then all the problems that would exist around trying to have that many people vote by mail, um, while the president is also, you know, seemingly sort of taking actions to try to limit that from happening. So, you know, if I were to say all things being equal, how to, how to sort of weigh those things. I think some of the stuff around the administration of the election is probably a more important feature than some of this enthusiasm stuff, which it's kind of hard to measure. And, you know, by and large, you know, it seems like people are, are pretty motivated to, to get to the polls this year. When it comes to mail-in ballots, are you seeing a, a massive polariz- polarisation then between Democrat and Republican views on that, shaped in part by what the president's saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, not, and not just shaped about mail-in ballots in general, but even their intention about what they are going to do on election day or, you know, before election day. Um, so it, it appears that this has sort of become yet another issue that has become polarized, unfortunately. Um, and we're seeing people kind of sort along those lines in, in ways that, you know, it, it could, could sort of be pretty problematic on election day. Um, you know, if it was the case that, you know, there was a huge mail surge and there's a bunch of ballots that sort of don't get delivered until later. And then we have results over time changing, you know, well after election day, because these ballots are continuing to come in, it, you know, it creates a situation in which people are potentially going to start to question the validity of this. And they're going to start to question it often kind of with probably with the backing of a president who's shown himself willing to be able to sort of stoke concerns and conspiracy theories. So, you know, right now it's something that we, we probably all need to be concerned about just to make sure that this can happen sort of safely mm-hmm. and efficiently and, you know, making sure that the American public kind of is, it has as much faith in the process as possible. Because um, certainly there are a lot of people out there trying to, to make sure that it can happen 
um, you know, in good faith. Okay, thank you very much. That was really interesting. I learned a lot there. Yep. Yeah, sure. Happy to chat, Eric. Thank you very much. A really interesting interview there with Robert Griffin, where I think we learned a lot. I certainly did. Um, the main headline would be that Biden is in a far stronger position than Hillary Clinton was at this stage back in 2016. But I think what's really significant is this change that's going on concerning the age divide in American politics. And if older, whiter voters are shifting towards the Democrats, something Robert described as going against recent electoral history, then that should really trouble Republicans. And similar to what we heard in part one of this episode, there is a liberalisation of views that's occurring on the left of the Democratic Party over issues such as race. And it's interesting that this is a process that's down not just to one event or one president, but actually has roots in how a whole generation of voters has been brought up, reflecting that tension between long-term and short-term factors in determining how an individual votes. For more on this interview, please check out my write-up and analysis of what we've learned from Robert Griffin, which is available online at the moment on ericgreen.co.uk. There's a link in the podcast description below. I hope you've enjoyed this two-parter of an episode. We'll be back with more as the election proceeds. Please share, comment and let us know what you think of this series of podcasts because we really do appreciate your views. For now though, thanks for joining us today and I'll see you next time. Goodbye.